You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Monster House presents Monster Talk is proud to be a part of the Airwave Media family Home of such shows as Fork in the Road Small Things Often And Therapist Uncensored If you'd like to advertise on this show Contact sales at advertisecast.com Deja vu. What did you just say? Nothing, just a little deja vu. What did you see? What happened? A black cat went past us, and then another that looked just like it. How much like it? Was it the same cat? Might have been, I'm not sure. What is it? A deja vu is usually a glitch in the matrix. It happens when they change something. Let's go. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. In that intro clip, we heard a little from the classic 1999 action sci-fi thriller, The Matrix. In that film, Deja Vu served as a hint that the AI controlling the situation had cheated and was changing reality to their benefit. Deja Vu, that weird feeling that something in the present is replicating some murky past experience, shows up in a variety of fictional tales. Stories that have bled into the language of the real world and affected how people consider this unusual, yet also universal, mental experience. Could we be living in a simulation like in the film The Matrix? I don't think so. But that's not even the weirdest way Deja Vu gets explained. Don't forget things like time loops in films like Groundhog Day and Edge of Tomorrow. Sometimes the sensations are perceived as psychic premonitions. But maybe we don't need a supernatural explanation. To find out more, Karen reached out to Professor James Giordano. James is a professor in the Departments of Neurology and Biochemistry at Georgetown University Medical Center and was kind enough to make time to discuss Deja Vu with us. 
And if you enjoy this discussion even half as much as we did, well, then you're in for a treat. Monster Talk. So, well, we welcome to the show Professor James Giordano. Thank you so much for joining us. I've wanted some time to talk to an expert about the topic of deja vu, and it seems like uh, you have explored this topic for uh, quite some time. Well, this is the part in the interview where I, I'm supposed to tell you that I think we've had this conversation before. It seems very familiar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, let, let me start by saying that uh, I created a document with some questions and uh, Blake here went in and added every second, made every second question, what is deja vu? <laughs> so <laughs> let's, let's just get that out of the way. <laughs> so, the, so the question is, what is deja vu? Yeah. Yes, what is deja vu? To the best of your knowledge, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the best, the best way to explain deja vu is that, is that a strangely unusual sensation that you've experienced something before and that it's playing out for you exactly as you remember it, yet you've not experienced it. So mm-hmm. it, it's a sort of a mismatch between what you think you're recalling as a memory and what you're experiencing in the first person in real time. It, it, it's unnerving. I, I've certainly had it myself. Uh, me too. What, do you know, it, it, I've got so many questions. Uh, let me start with the, I guess, the easiest one is, how common is this across populations? It's very common. Uh, again, there's, it's very difficult to create, I think, an accurate statistic, but... In those polls that have been taken, in those surveys that have been taken, we're looking at greater than 90% of any generalized population has experienced the phenomenon of deja vu at least sometime in their lives. The question then becomes, is it more common among certain populations or among certain groups, collectives or individuals than others? And there really doesn't seem to be a particular pattern. Hmm. Well, Jim, I've experienced this a lot uh, myself over the years, and it seems like I experienced it more and more vividly when I was a lot younger and nowadays less so often. So I don't know if there's some kind of uh, age uh, issue going on there, but is this uh, something that you've experienced yourself? Personally? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, The experience for me has been lifelong. Uh, So it's not just restricted to when I was younger or now that I'm in my middle 60s. But I think that for some individuals, there tends to be a pattern with regard to the frequency of the experiences occurring more when they're younger. And of course, the novelty of that experience when they're younger is such that it's somewhat more profound. So, you know, it's sort of the old Yogi Berra quote. Well, here it is. It's deja vu all over again. <laughs> and I think for a number of people, as they as they become more familiar with the experience, the first person experience, it's just far less um, unnerving or far less unusual for them for three reasons. Number one, they've had experience with it and therefore they're matching the experience of deja vu with a prior experience of deja vu which sort of sounds like a meta deja vu experience, but it is. The second is that the novelty has worn off because they have experienced it. And the third is that they have some form of cognitive intellectual insight to it. And so rather than this just being an unusual experience or a phenomenal experience that has this very unnerving quality, they're simply able to name it, frame it, claim it as their own and continue. This must be really challenging to study because it seems like it's rather stochastic in most 
people? Is Are there people who have it with regularity high enough that they can be studied under fMRI or that sort of thing? Or how, how, how? That's a great question. And the stochasticity of the event is such that it makes it very, very difficult to study because if you try to induce the phenomenon, the problem is that that may not represent the actual phenomenon as it occurs. So the question then is, can you induce these types of experiences and are they, quote, legitimate? Are they representative of the actual or genuine deja vu phenomenon that one would uh, uh, experience, as you say, more stochastically throughout the course of their day, et cetera? That being said, one of the ways that this is studyable is to have individuals who have a regular, uh, a more regular frequency of deja vu type events and schedule them in some form of neuroscientific, technologically oriented device, whether it's through the use of EEG, whether it's through the use of functional MR and or some combination of both and try to just have the individual go about a series of tasks and then report that they're now having the deja vu experience. But as you could imagine, number one, that's rather unreliable. Number two, it's rather time consuming. And number three, it's artificialized. So what you're really doing is you're creating a circumstance in which you may be inducing the deja vu phenomenon, but the induction of that phenomenon may not be identical to that which occurs spontaneously. So again, I think the issue here is that it is a bit elusive to study. And when it has been studied, it's been studied more or less as an artifact. And that's given us some insight to what's happening neurologically. And so in cases where uh, uh, researchers would try to simulate deja vu, how would you possibly do that? Well, uh, up until quite recently, it was rather difficult. So the, the, the prior attempts at simulating or evoking deja vu would you try to get some report from the individual in terms of what, what's happening when you have these events? Is there some set of commonality? Is there some particular set of circumstances or settings? And then trying to replicate those circumstances or settings as best possible to be able to then evoke that phenomenon. And you could imagine that that's arduous. Yes. However, with yeah. some of the newer neurotechnologies, so, for example, transcranial electrical or magnetic stimulation, the possibility of actually evoking a neurological network pattern that then produces the deja vu phenomenon is far more tangible and tractable. And that's become, I think, uh, uh, what I'll say a more reliable, but certainly a more reproducible research tool. So... Mm -hmm. Again, it's a question of finding the appropriate montage, which is the placement of the electrodes for using transcranial electrical stimulation or the actual placement of the superficial magnet for transcranial magnetic stimulation. And then through essentially a process of anatomical placement and trial and error, trying to replicate the induction of this phenomenon where the individual says, well, now I'm experiencing this. And then at that point, codifying, number one, what is that montage of electrode placement or magnetic placement on that individual? And then at that point, trying to then evoke that experience and study that experience in terms of assessing what nodes and networks of the brain may be differentially involved and active. Mm 
<laughs> and that gives you a deja vu. What? <laughs> oh. it, gives you, it gives you a view to deja vu. <laughs> uh, should have warned you about his puns. As yeah. Well, <laughs> well I, this is so fascinating to me. When I, when I was yeah. a kid, it used to happen quite commonly. And I, I, mm-hmm. I, so this raises a question because one time I remember just this one occurrence where the deja vu experience was going on so long that I got a little scared, and so I did did random things that I knew I had never done, like just making weird noises and shaking my hands to snap myself out of it. <laughs> I've but, done things like yeah, that. Yes. <laughs> but do we know like what in an average, like there's so many things we think we know how long they take and then they turn out to be really fast or really slow or way, you know, do, do we have a sense of what an average deja vu uh, experience runs, like, you know, in, in seconds or is it? You know, it's it's anywhere from ten to thirty seconds on average. Okay, oh, I'm average. Okay, <laughs> yeah. It's very yeah. Average. And, and interestingly, um, what what can occur quite often is that when the individual then experiences deja vu and they recognize, well, what's happening? I feel like I've done this before, and they begin to engage in behaviors. It's as if that whole scenario is unfolding for them as a memory rather than a real-time current event. So there seems to be not just a flashback aspect to it, but a feed-forward aspect to it, which I hope to be able to explain to you and to our listeners tonight. Oh, that'll be cool. Yeah. That, uh, now, I'm an IT person, and I'm very well aware that brains and computers are quite different. So uh, just if you if I say anything about short term memory, long term memory and RAM and, and processor, just throw a rock at me or whatever. I, I, I know they're not the same thing. So but, no, but I yeah. think that, that they're not homologous. Yeah. But I think that you can use them analogously. Yeah. So what we're really seeing with deja vu is something of a loop in the hardware and in a brain we call it wetware. And what it does is create a replicating program that is sensed to be something as a memory, when in fact, what's actually happening is you're codifying present input of information. So it's as if you've sort of gotten your networks crossed. One network is important for, if you will, the, the, the cognitive processing of memories. And look, even as we're talking now, I could ask you to pull up a memory of, I don't know, your, your, 15th birthday or your best Christmas or your favorite Thanksgiving. And you could literally go through the mental exercise of putting those memories together. And you might be able to see who's at the dinner table and you might close your eyes and you might be able to actually evolve that memory in relatively real time. Now, what's happening is you're confusing what's happening right now at the present with that feeling of having remembered it. And so what's actually occurring is the time machine aspect of the brain has hiccuped. It's confusing real-time integration of current information as it would process a memory. And the easiest way to think about that would be to remember that the brain essentially works, any brain essentially works as a time and space machine. And let me explain what I mean by that. The way your nervous system does what it does so beautifully is that it attempts to match everything to some prior sample. You know, the running joke is, well, I've never had you go to a restaurant, you say, well, would you like to have the schmuckatelli dish? 
And you said, well, that sounds <laughs> lovely, but what is it? And they tell you, well, it's, it's a fresh plate of steaming hot schmuckatelli. <laughs> you're like, well, I have no idea what that's like. So what Vicious. I would then say is, well, I think you'll like it. It tastes like chicken. So what I'm doing is I'm relating something in your past to something in your present so that you can make certain predictions about the way you feel about it, the way you think about it, and the way you respond to it, which then is important to codify and execute certain actions. We do this all the time. This is exactly the way your brain works. Every second of every day, what your brain does is matches your present circumstances to its memory of prior circumstances that are identical, similar, equivalent, or different, so as to guide what you think about, how you feel about those things, and what you should do. This is what is sometimes referred to as the BUDAC loop, where your brain has particular biases based upon prior experiences, and those biases can affect the way you observe certain things, the way you orient to certain things, the decisions that you make, whether or not you recognize them, don't recognize them, are familiar with them, like them, don't like them, what's happened before, what could that mean now, and those decisions then prompt certain actions. Those actions evoke certain consequences, and those consequences then feed back upon you and your brain says, yeah, this is an anticipated consequence or this is an unanticipated consequence. We do it all the time. Now, what happens with deja vu? It's actually rather simple. You're experiencing something in real time that because of a, if you will, network hiccup, your brain is interpreting as a memory rather than a real time experience. And so you feel as if you're remembering it, even though the thing is happening in real time. The reason for this is that those nodes and networks that are responsible for informational integration and processing also do that along a relative temporal scale. So in other words, you're able to recognize, well, I've seen this before, I've not seen this before. But you also do that on a very, very unconscious level. We, you know this. I mean, you're walking around your house mm, uh, mm -hmm. and you're familiar with the house, but you get into a new house or a new environment or you're trying to learn a new way to go to the office or to friend's house. There has to be some familiarity with it before it becomes rote. And when it becomes rote, what you're essentially doing is you're replaying a set of memories going, yeah, I'm going the right way. I'm making the correct turn. I'm not. And if things are a bit different, suddenly you feel off because although you're using memories to guide your present action, the cognitive attentiveness to those memories really is what we call subliminal. In other words, you're not thinking I'm remembering this. I'm remembering how to walk. I'm remembering where things are in my house. But if those things were suddenly to change, you would feel very disoriented. So the idea of utilizing memories and prior experiences as a template to match against your present experiences is exactly how your brain works. And all you need is a little hiccup in that, a little sort of change in the temporal processing, literally in the order or speed of that processing. And it's very likely that you'll experience things in the present as having happened before and being a memory. And the other possibility 
is sort of the reverse deja vu phenomenon, which is called jamais vu, which is I've not been here before. So even though you've seen something as very familiar, you're not recognizing it as familiar. I'm so glad that you raised that because I wanted to ask you about that other other views as well. But uh, just going back to what you said uh, earlier, you, you were saying that a large number of people experience deja vu. Is it more common with certain people, perhaps those who've had a brain trauma or uh, epilepsy, something like that? Now, so this this is where things get a little complicated. Among the non-brain injured and what I'll call non-pathologically diagnosed population, in other words, individuals who've not had some brain injury, individuals who don't have a metabolic disorder, they don't have any neurological condition whatsoever, deja vu is very common. However, deja vu-like phenomenon, <laughs> errors in, in information processing, errors in recognizing things that are familiar, um, errors in the temporal framing of what represents something that has happened versus something that has not, are certainly more common among individuals who have neurological injury and or some form of neurological insult or condition. Right. Okay. But I think the caveat that goes along with that is that the experience of deja vu is not anything to worry about, nor is it indicative of some explicit neurological condition that's manifesting itself if it's just deja vu happening alone. But if there are other things that are occurring, in other words, other problems where there's confusion or loss of memory or confusion of what represents a current event versus a memory event, problems with naming, problems with task identification, then it may be time to see a professional. But the, the usual deja vu phenomenon that most of us experience at some point is absolutely no cause for worry or alarm. Good to know. So, this is really interesting. Yeah, well, also true, also true. <laughs> but but that that sort of juxtaposition of of, of recall versus experience, but you, it doesn't change the fact that the memories are still being stored as normal. I can remember the experiences of having deja vu and what was going on at the time. So things are still mm -hmm. being done the same way. But at this other layer, the the experience of having your brain work that 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 qualitative experience of thinking, experiencing things, remembering that that's being interfered with in some way in this, in this moment, at least the, the sensation, but the underlying activity is still going on as normal. That's what seems Correct. to be. Okay. Correct. That, I mean, so, you know, that the, the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio has written a wonderful book and it's a great book that I would recommend to anyone. It doesn't require a degree in brain sciences or in neurology to read. It's a wonderful, what I'll call armchair book. And it's entitled the feeling of what happens. And what Damasio does is he basically talks about the way nervous systems interpret bodily information, both from you know, the interiority of your body, as well as the way your body responds to its various environments across time. And we become very comfortable in our embodied, embedded brain. We don't pay attention to our brain working, so to speak. It just works for us. But if you were to take a step back. In other words, if you would, I'm going to drop a fancy word, if you were to prescind a little bit, in other words, get outside of your own head, so to speak, yeah, you would feel that process of your brain working, at least to some extent. And when that just occurs spontaneously, 
and things are not working the way they ordinarily should work, you become very much aware of the way your brain is working and the way your brain is functioning. And that can be startling. Uh, or, or enlightening, apparently, in, in some places. <laughs> well, you know, it, it really does depend on your, on, on your perspective. Uh, again, I think mm -hmm. in the first time that almost anything happens that's unusual, the lack of usuality to it can certainly be, uh, if not cause for concern, at least cause for profound notice that this is very unusual. But the more common it becomes, the more usual it becomes, the less unusual it is. And so although it may not be a usual pattern of your cognition, it is no longer unusual or surprising to you. And again, now we go back to the Yogi Berra thing. Ah, I'm having deja vu all over again. And so, again, familiarity with these types of things very often breeds certain comfort. But I think what is also important to understand is, as you just noted, you can remember having deja vu phenomenon and what the actual phenomenon felt like. And then what you're able to do is to match subsequent deja vu phenomena to the previous experience of deja vu phenomenon. And you go, well, here it is again. So, again, it, it produces a particular first person or phenomenological familiarity, which for many people kind of lessens the impact of it. But it can still be rather unnerving when it occurs. So, uh, just hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. To kind of follow up on that, uh, often when deja vus occurred to me, it's been a very mundane event. I've just been standing somewhere and not doing anything in particular. Uh, are these kinds of experiences attached to any kind of event, or might it be more? Might they be more attached to a, a more dramatic event of some kind? No, you may have hit the nail on the head. So one of the things that that neuroscience, the brain sciences, and neurology is wrestling with is the why question of deja vu. Well, why is this happening? And you may have actually nailed it. In periods of boredom what very often happens is your mind will drift. 
And given the banality of certain circumstances and activities, you may be thinking about a variety of things and daydreaming, planning what you're going to do next week and what you're going to make for dinner and maybe even thinking about memories. And then suddenly you begin to experience something that brings you back to the present. And it's as if you're bringing forward that memory artifact so that the experience of the present is felt as if it is a memory. So if there's Uh any key factor that may be contributory, it's the one you just mentioned, the idea of cognitive boredom or cognitive laxity, where now you're just drifting a little bit and then suddenly you're brought back into the here and now, but you've still been processing memories. And so your brain is in the memory processing mode. So it's interpreting present information as it would a memory. And you feel that you experience that as such. So what are some of the stranger claims surrounding the phenomenon? I guess some of the more supernatural, uh, because I, I know some people do think it's a sign of some clairvoyance or, or something else is going on. Or they become worried that not only has this happened before, but now they can tell what's going to happen next. (laughs) (laughs) If that were the case, I think there would be far more people hitting the lottery on a regular basis. You would think so, right? (laughs) I would tend to. I would hope so. Good (laughs) point. And I would imagine that if that were indeed the case, you would see a lot more empirical evidence of individuals being able to harness that capability in those ways that are directional for them or useful to them. Now, uh, let's not confuse things that are paranormal with things that are supernatural. If you really consider what a definition of paranormal explicates, it is those things that are on the edge of normality. Well, what kind of normality? Are we talking about the sheer quantitative experience of certain things? Well, in, in that case, deja vu, while being a, a normal, natural process, doesn't occur every single day, every single week, every single month. So there is a temporal abnormality to it that puts it on the edges of our normal experience. If something is paranormal, it need not be unnatural. There are many things that happen within our natural physiological processes that are very unusual, and they can be considered to have something of a peri or paranormal aspect to them. As far as whether or not uh, deja vu represents something supernatural, let me sort of give you my my perspective on that. This is just Jim Giordano talking. Claiming that something is supernatural also makes the claim that it's impossible to study. The reason being is that we only have the tools in our scientific armamentarium to study the natural world, plain and simple. So, We cannot study things that are supernatural because we simply don't have the toolkit to do it. There is nothing that we can use that will assess anything other than the natural universe as we are aware of it. From things that exist on the very small scale, for example, on the the nanoparticulate scale where things may be at the sub-nano level that may even involve quantum processes, which could be quite freaky to things that are exceedingly large. I mean, being able to perceive the fact that our universe is enormous, and yet we're able to do that. But even given those dimensionalities of scale and the enormity or the the minutia of 
of the natural world, we're still studying the natural world. We're studying physics and chemistry and biochemistry and biology and all those series of interactions that then occur as a consequence. Nothing supernatural is studyable, investigable. We don't have the toolkit. Paranormal things, on the other hand, are certainly investigable because what we're really doing is we're investigating those things that occur in the natural world, but to do so outside some pattern of normality. Normality here being usual normality, temporal normality, the range of experience, the range of things that occur that have been measured or quantifiable or qualifiable. So in that regard, we can say that deja vu is a rather unusual phenomenon for many people because it does not occur frequently, yet it's a perfectly natural experience that does not have a supernatural component to it. And and let's just face it, if there were a supernatural component to it, that's really more the domain of belief rather than science, because as I mentioned, science just doesn't have the toolkit. Was a very nuanced answer. So I'm not reincarnated, <laughs> is what I got out of that. Is that? <laughs> well, I don't know. Perhaps you might be reincarnated, but it's not <laughs> testable. So we may. <laughs> well, so let, let, let me give you an exceedingly out there explanation for deja vu phenomenon that I've heard. Right? And what I mean by out there is it, it it goes beyond what I would consider to be the parameters of trying to understand something that's happening in your brain. And it really comes from the idea of, of physics. Oh, boy. There's an area of the brain. Yeah. There is an area of the brain sciences <laughs> that is called neuroquantology. And it's the idea that quantum operations happen in the natural world, but that quantum operations are, in fact, translated into mechanical operations as one goes up the degrees of scale. So on the very, very, very small scale, quantum operations might be preserved, but given all the constraints and all the necessary attractors and parameters of a biological system, as things get into the more sort of mechanical realm, we then get into very much more classical physics. However, there are those that have suggested that is it possible that certain changes that might occur, physics changes, and the quantum operations, the possibility of uh, string theory in multiple universes, might actually intersect at some point with the functions of a brain where the individual then gets some strange experience of the time-space continuum, whereby things are running backwards instead of forwards. Now, I've heard that explanation being tendered, once again, this is very, very difficult to be able to prove or disprove. Is it an entertainable hypothesis? I think it's interesting as hell. So let's let's run with this, if we could, for a moment. Sure. And, mm-hmm. and now I want to sort of speak to you as, as a brain scientist. And I've been doing this for the past four decades. I mean, this year I'll be a brain scientist for 42 years. So if you would put a gun in my ear... You just say to me, all right, look, Jim, tell me exactly how does mind occur in brain? I'd be like, pull the trigger. I have no idea. Wait, are you saying I'm a brain scientist, so I don't mind? What? <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I would say I don't mind pulling the trigger. So I, I have, it's, it's, and it's not just that I, Jim Giordano, am stupid. 
It's that this represents what the philosopher and cognitive scientist David Chalmers refers to as the hard question of the brain sciences. In other words, how does brain and mind occur? How does mind occur in brain? So let me give you some possibilities. One possibility is that the brain is nothing more than a box. It's a receptacle. Now, I want you to think of a box for a moment. I mean, really think about it. If this box is going to hold something, it has to have a particular structure. The walls of the box have to be hard enough to contain it. The floor of the box has to be sufficient to maintain whatever is that weight. And the structure of the box needs to be able to accommodate whatever you're going to put in it. If you don't have that structure, it's not a box. So you have to have the structure first before you can put something in it. The idea here is that, well, okay, our brains boxes into which some natural force in the universe is then attracted, captured, trapped, channeled, that once inside that box, then exerts a force on that box, so that now that box really is a container for that thing. It's not an empty box any longer. So a container is quite different than just a box, because now a container contains something. And if that particular box is also capable of sensing its own boxness, then what you've got is a subjective first-person experience of having a mind. Let's go with another possibility. Let's say that the brain is an antenna. Like any antenna, it has to have a particular structure. If I just tell you to stick your finger up in the air, you're not going to get a Wi-Fi signal through your finger. So an antenna has to have a particular structure, and that structure has to be capable of capturing and attracting a particular type and set of forces, and then translating those forces into something that is then understandable or expressible. Could it be that the brain is an antenna? Once again, it has to achieve a particular structure, a particular size, a particular configuration, but once it does then it's able to capture this natural force in the universe and perhaps transform it or simply just transmit it in such a way that is then informative, that is phenomenological, experienced to the thing to which the antenna is a part, the system, the organism. Yeah, that's possible. Let's go one more. Is it possible that the brain is a generator? Like anything else, a generator has to be built. It has a particular structure. That structure has to operate in particular ways where the different components of the thing are important to generating whatever it is. No single part of that generator is doing the generating, but the entirety of the generator working together creates whatever that force is. And if you take certain parts out of that generator, what then tends to happen is the generator stops generating or at least doesn't do so as effectively. Is it possible that the brain is a generator that generates this experience of consciousness and mind? Yeah, it is. Now let's go one step further. What about if there's not either or, but all of the above? At some point, the brain is a box. At some point, the brain is a generator. At some point, the brain is an antenna. Or for different aspects of things, the brain serves a box function, an antenna function, or a generative function. Might it be that the box has to capture something, and then by capturing that, that provides energy that allows that structure to morph into an antenna, 
And by becoming an antenna, it becomes more sophisticated and then develops a capacity for generating certain things? Sure. Now, the reason I tell you this is that since we really don't know what's going on, how the brain is actually doing what the brain does, is it possible that there are particular forces that are capable of working upon that brain? Wholly natural forces, nothing supernatural at all. But the pattern of the way those things are being processed, being held in the box, being funneled through the antenna, being generated by the system itself, are in some way different. Here, once again, we come to this point where now quantum and or cosmological physics interfaces with a physical structure called the brain. Is it possible that given certain hiccups that occur in the physical world that may be occurring inside the brain, a particular individual literally has a confusion of their own space-time continuum, and that's what a memory is anyway? It's provocative to think about. So what this really is saying is, is this an idiosyncratic event? In other words, it's happening just to me because my brain made me do it. Or is it that this particular point in time, the way my brain is functioning, is in some way a little bit of a warp? And am I replaying a memory? Or am I punched into something in the real world experience of the fabric of the universe that our brain senses. I think that makes compelling, provocative, and maybe contentious conversation. But what I can tell you is that what we know about the deja vu phenomenon is that it seems to be literally a hiccup in the pattern of network processing in these myriad nodes and networks that the brain consists of. And when that occurs, for whatever reason that occurs, that first person experiences, I've done this before, even though you have not. The confusion that a real-time event is perceived as a memory. And if you can explain it with macro effects, you don't need to go to the quantum realm. Absolutely. There's no reason to go to the quantum right, realm at right. all. Now, I, I, just a quick comment. I, in... We, you know, we, uh, Karen and I, in our, in our work, we do face a lot of people who believe in supernatural explanations for, for many things. And, and I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're very skeptical people. Uh, the idea that the brain is an antenna and receives consciousness from other realms, uh, is, is a very popular idea. So when you were speaking about the brain being an antenna, were you speaking metaphorically or were you literally addressing that particular concept? I just wanted to clarify. Well, I, I think it exists along a spectrum of possibility. If you knew what consciousness was, in other words, if I could define consciousness as a thing, in other words, this is, these are the ingredients of consciousness. Like I could describe the ingredients in my grandmother's spaghetti sauce. I think that would make it a lot easier. Yeah. But again, we default back to Chalmers' construct here, this being the, the hard problem. Is it an unsolvable problem? No, I don't think so. I don't necessarily view this as a perdurable mystery, but something of a puzzle. And the problem with that is that there are certain pieces of the puzzle that are still missing. So again, the question is, is consciousness something that arises from the brain or is consciousness the interpretation of some forces that are occurring that the brain may channel, capture, whatever, or generate? 
Or is consciousness something that's, quote, out there that then develops this first person experience when it is trapped in here being the meanness of me? This then gets into some other ideas of what's sometimes referred to as panpsychicism. In other words, it mm-hmm. is the universe conscious. Yeah. And I think that an entertainable thought there is not necessarily panpsychicism, but the idea of panbiopsychicism. In other words, are all living entities conscious on some level or in some domain, which really I can relate back to your IT background which is a nice way of saying, if something has the hardware, will it run the program? And again, it need not be a very, very sophisticated program, but it's certainly a program. And here too, it may not require a lot of hardware, just sufficient hardware. Boy, I I can tell right now, you and I would have a wonderful bar conversation. If we can, well, I think there would need to be adult beverages involved. Yeah, be yeah. I yes. I think about this all the time. You know, in the IT world, uh, there's that whole. Again, this is me. I, I love reading about brains and also computers. And so I'm very aware of how many people in the AI world seem to really believe that there will be a general intelligence coming down the line soon. Yet still can't define consciousness. And I, my idea is, or my belief is that if you can't define it, you can't model it. Uh, it would be very difficult. So I don't know what they're producing, but I don't think it's going to be consciousness. And, you know, AI is a really interesting. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a part of that kind of the defaults back to the Louis Armstrong definition of jazz. It's like, baby, if I got to tell you what it is, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I, think, I think that there's also an engineering issue here. And I'm not going to say it's an engineering problem, but I think it's an engineering um it's, it's, a, it's an engineering gap or an engineering schism that, that can be crossed. So let me, let me give you a parallel. Flight, right? a- aircraft flight. Since almost time immemorial, humans have been looking at birds and thinking, I wish I could do that. So how is it that over the millennia that humans have looked at birds and tried to emulate birds, that at one particular point, we then translated that into Yes, now we can fly. I mean, so what was it about Otto Lilienthal who determined, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I look at the structure here, at least I can glide. And then at that point, well, what is it that keeps me aloft? Well, I understand these physical properties, basically Bernoulli's principle and differential lift and pressure across an airfoil. But then if I translate that to a moving airfoil, now I've got a propeller which is basically hydrodynamics in the air. And then suddenly, boom, we get to the point of flight. Now, why is that important? Because the engineering aspect of being able to reverse engineer, not homologously, we're not flapping an aircraft wing in a rotational motion the way a bird flaps its wings or the way an insect beats its wings, We're sort of reverse engineering it analogously, and by that analogy, we then gain some insight to what it would take to homologously fly like a bird. I think that through some of the more recent iterations of machine learning that utilize certain forms of neuromorphic or neuromorphic-like computational systems, hierarchies, and architectures, 
it might be possible to be able to develop a machine system that is able to be self-referential and describe what elements are necessary for it to become aware of its own function and own iteration. In other words, its own existence, self-aware. Is that a form of consciousness? It's certainly a form of being cognitive of itself. So the idea of some kind of auto-generative machine learning towards some form of artificial intelligence that is self-aware, but that can also report back and say, this is the necessary step. When this happens, I become aware. You take this step out, I'm not aware. I think that will be uh, something of the Rosetta Stone. But again, that's an engineering issue, not necessarily a biological or psychological issue. True. And it'll, I mean, I'm almost certain it'll be a spectrum and it'll take time. And then then we'll always have that question of when was it exactly invented? But, and hopefully we'll be around to care about that question. That'll be important too. I agree. That's right. Let me just say quickly, I, I would love to have you come back and talk to us about AI and consciousness uh, as a, its own topic yes. because uh, I have so many questions, uh, so many things I've read I'd like to discuss, and uh, mm-hmm. clearly you, you have a well-ordered mind and are <laughs> adept at <laughs> speaking about this topic. So, well, you know, it's, it's because I've been here before, and so oh, it felt like it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, Jim, we have run out of time, but this has just been a fantastic conversation. We're so excited to have this opportunity to discuss this topic with you. But we have one final question, and that is, what's your favorite monster? My favorite monster? Oh, mm. total no-brainer. Total no-brainer. Gojira. Nice. Godzilla. Classic. <laughs> yeah. And we're talking the 1950s version. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah. yeah. Although I, I give I give Shin Godzilla a pretty good nod. That that was a good. One. It was an excellent film. And, it was. Uh, my son and I were just discussing today whether or not two questions. He would like to know. It, he's wondering: uh, Is Shin Godzilla actually from another planet? That's that's he's got this theory that that's what's really going on. And then the other question is: Are they ever going to make a sequel? Because they certainly left it with promising yet disgusting opportunity. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'd go. I'd, I'd watch the sequel. I think there should be. I think so, too. I think so, too. Well, goodness gracious, this was fun talking to you. So It was, yes. Thank and, you so and, much for your and time. I'd, and... I'd be happy to come back if you want to talk some more about some other stuff. And it was an honor and a pleasure. Thanks so much for your interest in my work. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. We'll keep in touch with you. Thank you. Oh, oh. Is there anything in particular you'd like people to link to from here? Like, is there any, like, any special thing that – anything you're promoting – your work, your site? No, no, no. I've got a couple of books coming out this year. I've got uh, one book coming out with uh, two colleagues of mine, Professor John Shook and Professor Roland Benedictor, and it's on neuroculture, the way that neuroscience and neurotechnology influence our culture and the way culture influences the way we use the brain sciences. Oh, my gosh. We really do need oh. to talk more. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then the other book, I'm, again, I'm, I'm doing with my, my longtime colleague and, and very longtime collaborator, Professor John Shook, and it's called Neuroethics 2.0. And it's looking at those ways that brain science is evolving on the global stage and are being affected by culture. And then what that will then do for the way we look at the ethical ways that we use brain science and what brain science teaches us about the way we do ethics. Uh, I just 
golly, I really wanted to just keep talking, but we're out of time. <laughs> but you, you, are you guys working with AI ethicists as well? Because I know if, if they're pursuing that, even though it's not quite the same thing, it, at the very least, they could learn from you about neuroethics as it stands now, right? We are. And we have a center at Georgetown, which is called the Cyber Smart Center. It's nice. smart is, is, uh, it's an acronym for the idea of science, mechanics, administration, research, and teaching. And what we really look at is the intersection between the neurocognitive sciences and machine learning. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Very well, exciting stuff. Indeed. We'll definitely have you back soon. Absolutely. <laughs> Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You just heard an interview with Professor James Giordano from the Departments of Neurology and Biochemistry at Georgetown University Medical Center, discussing what science currently has to say about the mental phenomena of deja vu. I hope we get to talk to James again soon, because Karen and I had so many more questions and were fascinated by the discussion. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. And I feel like I've said this before, but thanks for making the time to... No, 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 no. I've definitely said this before, right? Have I? Wait a minute. Did I say this before? Okay, just thanks for making the time to listen to our humble show. In a monster house presentation with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.